welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I, I have so many things to chat with you about, but I wanted to actually maybe just start with um, the story of how you became a psychologist. What drew you to the field? What led to that? Yes. Well, I think somehow I was born with something that led me in that direction because I describe in one of my books how when I was five years old, I got a tricycle that I really wanted. It was this special, cool tricycle. And it was raining that day. And my grandmother let me ride it around in her living room, which would normally be strictly forbidden. But but since it was raining, it was my birthday. And the first thing I did was got my granddad to help me set up a cardboard box in the corner of my grandmother's living room. And I would commute to my box and sit in my box, which was my office. And the idea was people were supposed to come there and tell me their problems. Now, what's weird about this is that I grew up in a little town of 10,000 people in Leesburg, Florida. 1945, I was born. So this would have been 1950. There was no such thing as a psychiatrist in town. There was no such thing as a psychologist or a social worker or even a school counselor or anything like that. There was ministers, lots of churches and things being the South. But where would I have gotten that idea? Well, somehow, you know, later on, if you read books like, you know, James Hillman's books about uh, that you have a inner code inside you that's trying to find its way to some expression. Well, I'd be a good example of that because... I didn't think about that again until I was in maybe, well, I had graduated from college for sure. And I was going to be an English major in graduate school, which is what I'd done in college. And I wanted to write the great American novel. But the English class I was going to take, I forget what happened, but a friend of mine who had given me a ride over there to the University of New Hampshire, where this was taking place, he was one of the counseling students there in the master's program. And so I went where, where his classroom was. I went by to tell him that I'd gotten out early and I'd be in the lounge waiting for him to finish his class. And he said, come on in. And so I went in and what was going on there, they were doing group counseling and there was like eight groups of eight students sitting on the floor in these eight circles in this very large classroom. So he said, come on, join us. And I just sat down and it was okay with the professor. And what they were doing is just going around talking about what had gone on in their lives that week and different issues they were having with their partners and work and everything. And it just boggled my mind. I don't think I'd ever heard 15 minutes of that kind of intimate communication, you know, just talking about your life in front of people. That had never registered in my brain before, but I was electrified by it. And when it came to be my turn, I couldn't do it. I just kind of blurted out something about how nice it was to be there. And I remember everybody was kind of waiting for me to say something, you know. And But I, I didn't have the vocabulary for what they were talking about. 
But what happened was I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so two weeks later, I changed my major and took counseling classes. And I just immersed myself in that. And I got the greatest tip from one of my professors, Dwight Webb. This changed my life. Halfway through the program, I went to him and I said, you know, I really love writing. I've wanted to be a writer my whole life. And I had at that time written one small novel. I said, but I'm also fascinated by this whole new field. And he said, well, why don't you turn all your literary powers to focus on writing poetry and articles about this new field you're discovering? That had not occurred to me. And so for my master's degree thesis, I turned in, I think it was 37 poems about the counseling process. So like a 50-page manuscript about the counseling process. That led to some magic because one of the professors at Stanford in the PhD program saw my poetry in there. And at the time at Stanford, they were trying to create a kind of a behavioral humanism, you know, a crossbreed between science and poetry, basically, of counseling. And so that's how I ended up getting my PhD. They kind of recruited me and I went out there and got my doctorate at Stanford. So, but it was that whole set of sequences that started, I think, when I was five years old that predisposed me that once I actually saw it in action, I was totally totally blown away by it. And still to this day, even though, let's see, that was in 1968. So that would be like 54 years ago now. So you described this moment of walking into this group and it being your turn and not really knowing how to give it language or what to say or how to you know, find this connection between something happening deep inside of you and this external expression. Was there a moment when that clicked for you or it became easier? Well, let me tell you about an amazing thing that happened that next year of 1969. I was moving toward finishing my counseling, my two-year counseling program, and I was at a crisis point in my personal life because... Uh, where to start? I was in a, a relationship that had was really toxic. I mean, looking back on it now, it was a very toxic, emotionally abusive relationship. And we had been in that for a couple of years and couldn't figure out how to get out of it because I was working at a school for delinquent boys and I was uh, living in an apartment on the campus and I had about $39 in the bank, so it was not convenient for me to move out or anything. Also, I smoked heavily at the time and I weighed 300 pounds at the time rather than 180 that I weigh at the moment. So pretty much everything was still wrong on the surface of my life, although everything was changing underneath me as a result of being in the counseling program. And then on one magic day, everything changed because I was out for a walk trying to clear my head after being in an argument with the woman who was named Linda. And I stepped, I was in New Hampshire in a winter of New Hampshire in New Hampshire. There was snow on the ground from a storm the day before. And I stepped on a place where there was snow covering the ice and my feet shot out from under me. And I went whoop down on my back and whacked my head. I didn't knock myself out, but a 300 pound person is approximately what your kitchen refrigerator weighs, you know? And so when it hits the ground, boom. And so I didn't have an out-of-body experience. I call it an out-of-Hendrix experience because I, I was kind of knocked out of my normal perception of who Gay Hendrix was. So here's what happened during this two minutes I was lying on the ice. 
it was like I could see down through myself. It was a whole new vision of myself. I could see these layers of anger in my body, things that go, went back to when I was born, pretty much. I could feel layers of sadness in my body. I could feel layers of fear. And I could feel where they were kind of layered up in my body. And that was huge for me because being a very intellectual person, I don't think I'd ever given, you know, what they call a checkup from the neck up. I'd never given myself a checkup from the neck down. And I realized in that moment that there was this whole area that I hadn't been paying attention to, my inner world. And here's the thing, though, Sherry, when I felt my way down through the center of all of those feelings like anger and fear and sadness, I came across this wonderful surprise that at the bottom of all of our feelings, beyond all of our feelings, is what I call pure consciousness, which is that pure state of being that doesn't have any of your programming on it. It would still be there if you'd grown up in the house next door with different parents and different siblings. So this state of pure consciousness became my new home. I saw it there for the first time and I said, I want to live there. I want to feel that in every moment. And before I got back up to my feet, I made a commitment to feeling that pure consciousness in every moment. And so I didn't know how I was going to do it. But one way I started doing it was with food. I started eating only food that felt like it was feeding that pure consciousness rather than my 300-pound body. So overnight, I went from eating cheeseburgers, french fries, and vanilla malts for lunch to eating like a bowl of blueberries and uh, maybe some chopped up vegetables of some sort. So fruits and vegetables. I basically, like the first month, I lived on that and I lost 35 pounds. And then I had what I later called in the big leap, my first upper limit problem. I, I was feeling just so good. Then I walked past an ice cream shop and I saw this family of four devouring this huge triple sundae. And I went in and I ordered one for myself and I just forked in all of this stuff. And for about 20 minutes, I don't know if you've ever been on a sugar high, like on Halloween night or something, but for about 20 minutes, I was high as a kite. And then, oh, I got the worst stomach ache of my life. So it was, I, I had a mental snapshot of, wow, how did I go from feeling on top of the world to feeling miserable? And that's what I realized, oh, it's like I have an allergy to feeling good for more than a month at a time. And I started looking at that in relationship too. Oh, I've got an allergy to feeling good in my relationships for more than a day or two at a time. So that's what started me looking at the whole set of things that led me into the upper limit problem and, and working on genius and all of the things that are in the big leap. You know, one of the things that I so resonate with about your work and have such respect for your your thinking, but it's more than thinking, <laughs> your momentum in this direction is that integration of the body's wisdom or that understanding of finding consciousness, not only as a function of our prefrontal cortex, but as something that like lives in ourselves. And, you know, many psychologists get real, a real cerebral crew. And I guess I wonder in the story that you tell about laying on the ice and sort of going through these layers of your body, how do you help people connect with that body intuition or that body wisdom? 
Because I think many of us are real separate from our bodies. Yes. Well, I begin with really simple things. Like, for example, I ask, I will ask a, a, a new client, check on the sensation in your throat and let me know if you feel thirsty right now. And so that's exactly the same move that they will later need to do when I say, tell me, where do you feel your sadness in your body? It's exactly the same move, but we've been programmed to know about thirst. We haven't been programmed to listen to our other body sensations. But if you learn to listen and pay attention, your body's been sending you these signals for millions of years. And that is such a beautiful thing. The, real, the moment you realize, oh, I've got these other signals that I can learn to decode in there. Like I hadn't decoded the thing that would tell me to say, I feel angry at you right now. And I hadn't decoded the set of sensations that I would need to say, I feel sad or hurt or I feel scared right now. You know, if you haven't decoded where those sensations lie and what they mean, you're just this swirling mass of sensation. And in my case, I was just kind of cut off from the neck down. I just didn't tune into myself. I kept myself occupied with surface level things with like my fat and my whole overeating and being fat was a function of trying to keep myself from feeling those emotions that were down under there. Because, Sherry, the fact was that once I got my attention on it, it only took me a year to lose 100 pounds and keep it off for the last 50-some years. I even get letters sometimes from scientific studies that they study long-term weight loss, and they ask me questions about how I've kept it off over the years. But it, it was kind of a spiritual diet that I went on. You know, because it was it, it involved consultation with my inner self every moment of the way. Has your conscious self or your pure consciousness, has the things that it's desired for nourishment, has that changed a lot over the years? Or is it still lots of blueberries? and? Well, I had the great good fortune 43 years ago of meeting a, an amazing woman who, my wife now, uh, of 40 plus years, Katie Hendricks, and she loves nothing better almost. I mean, she is a psychologist and writes great books and everything, but one of her first loves is making food that makes people's bodies hum. And once I met her, I started eating food that she selected and prepared, and it sort of did all that for me because the food she makes is designed really to maximize consciousness. And so since I've been living on Katie cuisine for the last 43 years, that's been sort of a non-issue for me because I just naturally get the kind of stuff. But before I met Katie, there was probably, I had 10 years of being single where I, I was always faced with the choice there, really, because I'd be out for lunch, at a business luncheon, let's say, and there would be a buffet and there would only be about two things on the buffet that I could eat, you know, that I wanted to eat. And so I had to deal with that kind of challenge all the time. And I can't say I was impeccable either because I kept having, you know, even for two or three years, I would have upper limits problems. I would, I'd lost 75 pounds. You'll love this as a therapist. I'd lost 75 pounds. So I'd gone from 300 down to two and a quarter. And so I no longer... I looked like a big stocky guy, six foot one stocky guy. I didn't look like a six foot one obese guy. And 
I still had 25 or 30 pounds to go. I'm down in my in the 180s now and have been for many, many years. So I wasn't quite finished yet, but I was where I no longer looked obviously grossly obese. And I got a call from a friend of mine that I had known and used to eat a lot with when I was fat. And he was also very obese. So he and I would go out to these buffets, you know, and eat everything in sight and then ask ourselves the next day why we suddenly had gained five pounds. And so he struggled with his weight. And I would say he was probably 50 pounds overweight rather than 100 pounds overweight like I was. So anyway, I got a call from him and he said he was passing through and wanted to know if he could stop and spend a couple of nights where I lived in New Hampshire. And I said, okay. And he brought a friend of his with him that was traveling with him. And what I did not know is he had become an extreme pothead at the time. And so they saw that I'd lost a lot of weight. And then they went into town to run some errands and brought back a five pound box of chocolate caramels and wanted to kind of, as a practical joke, make me sabotage my way of eating. And I got really pissed off about that because what I want for friends are people that will cheer on my well-being, you know, not try to sabotage my well-being. It's just like a friend of mine who now has, gosh, 40 years of sobriety. When he tried to go to his first AA meeting, when he decided to quit drinking, a member of his own family tried to get, <laughs> get him not to go, you know, and tried to have him have a drink instead. And so, you know, it's like you have to look at your friendship network and ask yourself, what are they maintaining in me? Are these people maintaining my quest for pure consciousness or are we keeping just another crab, keeping a crab down in the bottom of the bucket? And so I was, I ended up having to ask them to leave, actually. I, I basically kicked them out. And it was a really a tough thing. But then, oh my God, about six months later, I got a call in the middle of the night from a third friend of mine saying the guy that had brought me the candy had dropped dead of a heart attack with a lot of speed in his body. And, you know, that was really heartbreaking because my last conversation with him was, I'm going to have to ask you to leave, you know, which is not the kind of last conversations you like to have with your friends. But huh, so that left a big impression on me. But it was indelible in a way because I saw that that could have been me, you know, on a different day. That could have been me if I'd made a different set of choices. So I've always felt like, in a way, since I lost that 100 pounds, for the last 50 years, I've been on vacation <laughs> because I, uh, I uh, took care of that problem that had been plaguing me all my life. I mean, really, they later on discovered what the, the glandular stuff was that had kept me imprisoned in my body, but it didn't get discovered until after I'd lost the weight. So I had to do it myself. And now you can do it by a series of injections and things that change that problem. You've had this this long life of being very embodied and in touch with pure consciousness. And I'm I'm curious how that consciousness comes to be in the spark you share with Katie. So how do two people feed that in each other? Yes. Well, the first thing has to do with commitment. Ideally, both people in a relationship need to commit to the same things. It's not like love, honor, and obey you forever. It's things like, I commit to telling the truth to you. I commit to taking responsibility when things come up rather than blaming. I commit to supporting your genius and what that 
how that expresses in your life. So these are practical commitments, not I promise to love you forever kind of things. These are specifics that deal with those moments when the rubber really does hit the road, where you have something come up in a close relationship. And there will be always things come up because I apologize for not knowing about your life. Are you married or in a close relationship or where are you? I am married. Yep. I've been married for 20, almost 23 years. Okay. Well, blessings upon you. Do you have kids of the whole catastrophe, as they say? I have the whole catastrophe, <laughs> the whole mess. Yeah. I have a 16 year old and a 12 year old, both boys. That line comes from a wonderful movie. I saw Zorba the Greek when I was a kid where they asked him if he was married. He said, yeah, marriage, kids, the whole catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know then that there's a difference between what you're committed to and then what sometimes unconsciously shows up. So what happens is that in a close relationship right now, I think the statistical average of a committed relationship is less than four years, somewhere around four years. And so if you want to get past that four year thing, you've got to master several different things. One is you've got to master the art of what I call microscopic truth telling. A lot of people, when they think of telling the truth, they think about, oh, you stupid idiot. You know, they think that's telling the truth. But what the truth is, is, oh, I'm scared right now. It never involves the other person. It's I feel sad right now or I feel angry, but it, it's not an attribution of blame. And many people cannot figure that out for them. Anger is all about blame and getting back at the other person. What they did to me. Yeah, it's from the victim position. And here we say that all arguments between couples involve a race to occupy the victim position. One person says, if you would just stop doing dot, 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 I'd be a lot happier. And the other person says, oh, yeah, well, if you just stop doing dot, 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 I'd be a lot happier. And so it both people try to occupy the victim position at the same time. And, you know, I've, I've literally had couples in here that have been doing that for 20 or 30 years and never figured out how to get out of it. And in the meantime, they've led a whole life being miserable a lot of the times, like my, like my mom said about my grandparents. They were married for 63 years, but they weren't speaking to each other for 59 and a half of those years. You know, it was a perpetual conflict. You race to the victim position, but then realize it's actually not that fun there. It's not that fun there because from that position, the only thing you can try to do is recruit the other person to that position. And it's very losing proposition because most people, when you claim to be the victims, they don't say, you know, honey, you're right. I am the sole cause of all of your misery. You know, they, I have yet to see one say that. <laughs> so what position should we be racing toward in our relationships? empowerment, taking full responsibility for you, how you show up in the relationship. Because if both people can take full responsibility for how they show up, what else are you going to argue about? You know, if, if I say, okay, I criticized you a little while ago, I feel angry at you. And I've been carrying around some anger since yesterday when I heard you say dot, dot, dot. That's the kind of communication that will keep you from getting stuck because it's coming from what actually is going on inside yourself. And once both people can get used to talking that way rather than speaking as victims, 
magic becomes possible because human beings are not designed to hold on to feelings for days or months or years. You know, if you look at a, I have two British short hair cats that I adore, and they get mad about something like what, the other day in, a, in the dark, I stepped on one of them's tail on my way into the bathroom in the middle of the night. And she went, ah! but then 15 minutes later, she wasn't still mad about it. You know, they get off it and move on, you know. And when you come back in the room, they don't say, oh, there's the guy that stepped on my tail. I'm going to bite his toe. You know, uh, so and that's a good thing. But human beings have the capacity to cling on to something literally for generations. I I was teaching a, a course once where the one of the things had to do with reconciliation of the Bosnian conflict. And it had to do with having a group of Bosnian Muslims and a group of Bosnian Christians and things like that. Long story. But anyway, a guy said to me, he said, first thing he said was, if you really want to understand this conflict, you've got to realize it started in 1389. <laughs> because something happened in 1389. And quite at this moment, I don't remember what it was, but it was such a big thing that they'd been fighting about it. So that now there was the Muslims versus the Christians and had been that way for 600 years. And boy, you got to work hard to keep a group of people peeved at each other for that long because a whole new group must be inoculated with it every generation. Otherwise, people forget about it and they say, oh, those are those other guys that live. Because I asked him, well, do they dress differently? No. Do they look differently? No. The only thing that was different was their beliefs. And so they were willing to kill hundreds of thousands of each other over the centuries because of that. Because when I got there, it was not their first war. They'd been fighting for many, many, many hundreds of years. So what I'm getting at is being right and clinging to a position is something that is guaranteed to produce misery on down the line, including war, because you get attached to something, then something unreal needs to be defended against. And once you start defending against unreal things, it never ends. And so at some point, though, one side stands up and says, okay, I take responsibility for our part of the conflict. The other person's side says, okay, I take responsibility for creating it. That's hard to do in the political world, you know, because I see them try to do it. You know, they had one in the Mideast a while back and the other side would say, OK, we agree to take responsibility, but only if you agree that you're the one that's at fault. You know, and so it, it gets to be a, a dicey dance like that and the world goes on. But in your personal life, I have personal evidence that you can create long lasting misery, busting up patterns that produce well-being joy, happiness, and an easy flow of connection and relationship by doing the kinds of things that I'm talking about. What role does sensuality, sexuality, that sort of shared body experience that you have with your significant other, what role does that play in creating this kind of true consciousness between humans? The first thing, well, it plays a huge role, and what happens is in order to have a flow of connection and love with another person, that can only happen to the extent that you have felt some kind of a loving flow for yourself, that you always get in relationship what's necessary for you to learn. And it may not 
be anything you've thought of when you signed up. You know, I didn't know all the things that I was going to learn from Katie and needed to learn from her. And she didn't know all the things that she needed to learn from me until we got into it and committed and said to each other, okay, I commit to you in such a way that it's bigger than whatever BS I'm going to run in the process. Any of my old programming is probably going to kick up from time to time. And I make a commitment to you that's bigger than that. And so that was really useful because then when stuff came up, we had a holding, a space for it. You know, we had already realized that things are going to come up no matter how enlightened you are. And so that's why I suggest keeping your attention on two variables in yourself. How long can I maintain the flow of loving connection with myself before I mess it up with worry thoughts or starting an argument or drinking too much or smoking too much or whatever your particular tool of distraction is? How long can I enjoy that flow before I put an upper limit on it? That's a great metric. Second metric in a relationship is how long can we maintain the flow of connection before we mess it up with some kind of an upper limit problem? You're going to do upper limit problems. Just focus on increasing that amount of time. That way you won't feel as bad when you mess it up. You'll say, okay, I fell off the horse. <sighs> Let me get back on again. And that's the way to do it. You're going for duration. <laughs> yes, exactly. I feel like there's a little bit of like a, uh, maybe a gentle debate within the psychological world around whether physical intimacy sparks emotional connection and intimacy or whether emotional connection and intimacy must be in place before physical intimacy is possible. A little bit of like a chicken or the egg problem. And since you think so much about embodiment and about connection, I'm just curious, you know, where you land with that. I land with it more on the side of emotional connection comes first and then sexuality grows out of that. To me, that's the great gift now, when I was 18 years old, I can guarantee I did not think about that. I did not consider that aspect of it. It was, huh, good-looking woman, want to have sex with her. That was the end of my consideration. It's pretty utilitarian. <laughs> yeah, very utilitarian and very cave-oriented, cave person. And so it took me a long time to go the other way around where I realized it was really about the emotional connection first. I learned that in a I don't want to say the hard way because it was actually the soft way, because one time in my late 20s, I started to make love with somebody that I had made love with before and I couldn't get an erection. And I said, what is that about? And so later I, I talked about that with a person who said, well, maybe you ought to, instead of giving your penis a hard time for not standing up when you wanted it to, maybe ask yourself, why wasn't I sexually interested in that person at that moment? And as soon as he asked me that question, I realized, oh, I've changed inside. I'm not interested in that person anymore. I'm interested in something that goes deeper than that. But I hadn't informed my body yet. So my body had to let me know that I had changed my mind. And that's a beautiful thing about bodies is they will give you real good feedback because they've been being perfected for millions of years to tell us when we're scared or angry or sad or sexy or whatever. And yet in modern life, we often learn to tune those things out. 
as we, um, well, not where you live. I live in Minnesota, so we have snow on the ground. We're entering winter and solstice and darkness. You live in California where, you know, we don't bother with those kinds of things. <laughs> no, I, I, I've made, I, a long time ago, I've made a <laughs> vow to never complain about the weather to anybody because wherever I am, my weather is always better than wherever they are. <laughs> I'm also aware that... Um, you know, there's a larger conversation happening in the world around politics, around recession, around any number of collective corporate human trauma and tragedy. And when you are in a place where you're maybe looking forward into what may be a, a dark night of the soul or a season of grief or a season of darkness, how do you settle into that? How do you sort of here are the body's intelligence in those moments where kind of preparing maybe for something more difficult. Yes. Well, I, I lived in coal country for two years. And um, then I lived in Colorado, which I would give sort of a coal some of the year, but I lived in a place, it was medium. It wasn't anything like Minnesota or New Hampshire. By the way, I have a piece of advice. If ever you go out on a long book tour to sign books in 20 different cities in 19 days, as I did once. Make sure you don't do it in Minneapolis on the day of the worst ice storm in 100 years. Uh, because I was in this vast bookstore in some mall where it was me and three or four clerks and a stack of my books. And I swear nobody came in for about three hours. We just oh, no. stood there. It, it, was, it, was, uh, it was about the pits for a uh, writer. Uh, but yeah, here's the thing. You've got winter coming on. And what's common about winter is sluggishness, slowing down, couch potatoing, not getting outside to breathe as much fresh air. All of those things are setups to feel bad in your body, and that's, of course, going to make you have negative thoughts in your mind. So the first big plea would be get plenty of light and oxygen and move it through your body. You know, that's a key thing, because if you don't take care of that basic, you know, just like me, if I was 50 years later still stuffing myself with cookies and ice cream and everything, three meals a day, I wouldn't be feeling what I'm feeling and doing what I'm doing. And so I think that's the first thing. You've got to really move. Like here, when people graduate from our uh, seminars, they get a little wristband and it says, breathe, move, love. And so if you're immobile and can't do anything else, hmm, take some big breaths. But if you can get up and move around, move. And then once you've got some movement, Love, love as much as you can from wherever you are. That's our big piece of advice. And you don't have to be any particular place. Just love as much as you can from wherever you are. And that gets a process starting. You know, here we say all you need is one conscious breath and one new positive thought to start a new chain of well-being in yourself. Just one and one positive thought, like instead of I can't do that, think, okay, maybe I could do that. And just opening that tiny little bit of positive, a window lets that breeze blow through and begins the whole process. <laughs> it's a great reminder for the winter and onward. 
Well, thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. I um, yeah, have been so inspired by your work and your writing and the ways that you've brought the body into the centrality of the conversation around wholeness and wellness. So love what you're doing. Grateful for you. Well, thank you. And same to you. I appreciate you for occupying your zone of genius and doing things that light up yourself and light up the world at the same time. Blessings upon you. And if we could uh, send our folks to how they can follow up and find out more about you, what you've all, you've written numerous books, where's the best place for folks to do that? A good place to start would be our basic website, hendricks.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. And we are also all over, you know, Facebook and the web. Uh, Our Facebook presence is called Hearts in Harmony. And that's where we have lots of videos and things like that. So, Uh, Hendrix.com or Facebook or Instagram, all those good places we show up. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.